0: Now we're going to pick back up anatomy, physiology, the human body chapter 7 whatever you want to call it I guess our third uh, class going over the this material we talked about some of this already but this is the pulse is created by blood pumping out of, the, out of the left ventricle into the major arteries and each time the left ventricle contracts it ejects how much 70 and we call that stroke volume. stroke volume that is correct how can you tell if someone is not ejecting the full 70 milliliters how can you measure stroke volume in the field From across the room, how can you measure stroke volume? The skin. Because if they're not perfusing properly, their skin will look like what? Pale, cool, and diaphoretic. There you go. All right, blood pressure is the pressure uh, that's exerted against the arterial walls. Um, Primarily, you're looking at a lot of times when when the left ventricle contracts and when the when the ventricles are relaxed, that you're measuring the pressure that's exerted on the arterial walls in both times, right? So pretty much it's represented by two numbers, right? One number over the top of the other number. The 120 is the what? Systolic blood pressure. The bottom number is the diastolic. So obviously this is the pressure this... E- It's a quantitative value for the pressure that's exerted against the walls of the artery when the ventricles contract, right? And this is the same measure of the pressure when the ventricles are relaxed. So, they're both bad if they get really high, but which one do you think affects you the most? Why? Because if there's an extra and added pressure on the arterial walls when the heart's relaxed or resting... It's not getting any break at all, right? So they're both bad, like I said. And go ahead and understand this term, too, the pulse pressure. If I say the pulse pressure, that is uh, you sub- you subtract the diastolic from the systolic. So if your blood pressure is 120 over 80, what's the pulse pressure? 40. And that'll come back to play. In some of the trauma chapters, but the pulse pressure is the difference between the systolic and the diastolic pressure. All right, the systemic vascular resistance is how dilated or constricted the blood vessels are. That's and I gave you another name for that. I said it, and and that name uh, represents the amount of work that the left ventricle has to perform to. Overcome the pressures to, to make the 70 milliliters pass through the uh, aortic valve and into the aorta. What is, I gave you a name for that. Does anybody remember what it was? Afterload. Afterload. Preload is the amount of blood returning to the heart. Afterload is definitely uh, kind of along the same lines as sy- systemic vascular resistance. And the average adult has 5 to 6 liters of blood. It says 5 here, but it's 5 to 6 liters of blood. What's 20% of 6? Six? 6. Huh? 0.2? 1.2? 2. Okay. Perfusion is the circulation of blood in an organ or tissue in adequate amounts. That is perfusion. So if you have a loss of blood or loss of pressure so or, or some reason why you can't circulate adequate amounts of oxygenated blood through an organ, what do we call that? The Medical prefix hypo... Means low or insufficient. Hypoperfusion. But what do they call that on TV? Because everybody goes into it on TV. Shock. Shock. He's in shock. Hypoperfusion. And how can you tell from across the room if someone is in shock or hypoperfusion? Will be what? Pale. Pale. Cool diaphoretic. Sick. Yeah, sick folks look sick, that's right. Loss of normal blood pressure is an indication that blood is no longer circulating efficient, efficiently. And again, we'll get into it, it like really in depth in the shock chapter, but it's simple hydraulics. In order for hydraulics to work and work properly, you got to have a pump that's working right, correct? You have to have the pipes or the vessels in adequate shape for the volume or the liquid to pass through, and then the liquid or the blood has to be in those pipes in adequate amounts, right, to maintain the pressure. It really is hydraulics. All right. Inadequate circulation in adults, the heart automatically lowers blood volume as patient loses blood. Heart pumps more rapidly to circulate lower amounts of blood, pulse increases as pressure falls if blood loss is too great adjustments fail and the patient goes into shock i don't like nothing that slide says because to begin with your heart is not going to adjust the amount of blood that's in your body that's not accurate it would be relative because (coughs) bless you I don't like nothing that's on that slide. If the body detects, I told you the body's going to compensate for anything and everything, right? If the body, you know, remember you've got those chemo and baroreceptors, receptors, right, that are in your carotid arteries and your aortic arts, right? And they're constantly measuring what? Pressure. The pressure and then the chemical composition of your blood too, right? So let's just say you've been cut and you're leaking and you're losing volume. All right, well, those baroreceptors are going to pick up that sudden little drop in pressure and cause the body to release a catecholamine. Uh, it's, uh, and I know we haven't gotten to the sympathetic nervous system yet, so I'm not going to get so deep. But your body's going to release adrenaline, epinephrine, right? And that causes a lot of things to happen. It causes all your vessels to get smaller. So it's not really affecting the blood volume, but it's making the pipe smaller to maintain, it's still hydraulics, right? Okay? And the heart will pump faster, and it's going to pump stronger because uh, acet- uh, epinephrine affects those three states of the heart that we talked about last class, inotropic, dromotropic, and chromotropic, okay? So that's correct. Um, and then the skin, the epinephrine, is what causes the skin to get pale, cool, and diaphoretic, because it shunts blood to the vital organs, again in an effort to make that container smaller to maintain that pressure. Just don't even pay attention to none of that crap. Because the patient is in shock long before the adjustments fail. That I don't like that slide off. I hadn't said that already. All right, we're gonna quit looking at it. But dude, make a note of this. And again, it's kind of getting ahead. But the human body can compensate for an acute loss of up to 20% of your total blood volume. That's why I asked you what 20% of 6 was. And isn't it a little bit cl And I'm not the mathematician, I promise you. But isn't it a little closer to 2 liters? 20% of 6? Madison said no. Your calculator said 1.2. Okay, all right. Whatever. Well, maybe they got more than six then. This is what you need to know. The human body can compensate for an acute loss, that means it happens right now, an acute loss of up to 20%. Once you get over that 20% mark, the body has extreme difficulty compensating. In, in an acute fashion. Alright. Blood under pressure will gush or spurt intermittently. When do you think it's going to spurt? <laughs> so when is it spurt? Every time that left ventricle contracts, right? How many of y'all have seen that uh, YouTube video, that hockey goalie? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Type in... Hockey, goalie, arterial bleed. And you will see 70 milliliters go on the ice. I think so. So it's a happy end. It's a feel-good story. I don't think they got in a fight over that. Yeah, buddy, his leg come up and his skate went right across. That's what happened to him. All right. <laughs> yeah. Oh <my> God. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's the old carotid. Yeah. So, thirty percent of blood is in the heart arteries and capillaries, and seventy percent of the blood is in the veins and the venules. All right, but don't you to write in here too. The liver at any given time can hold up to forty percent of your total blood volume. The liver can hold up to forty percent of your total blood volume. Why is that important enough? If it gets injured and it starts to leak, right? It could be bad. Alright, the lymphatic system, what does it do? Somebody look in the book and tell us what the lymphatic system does. Okay, but what does that mean in English? Okay, but what's it doing? Why does it do that? If you're sick and you go to a doctor, what's that doctor going to do? Mash under your neck, maybe under your armpits, right? What is that doctor feeling for? Swollen lymph nodes. Why would they be swollen? They claim on the okay, he's picked up something, transported it to a lymph node, and it's caused it to swell, right? Uh, foreign material is filtered uh, from the lymph, and the lymph nodes, and returns to the main circulatory system via the thoracic duct. But... uh so do you think it's fair to say then that it kind of works with the immune system or and the systems to help keep you healthy and safe and all that? Lymphatic vessels carry fluid away from the tissues. At uh, present, in all tissues except the central nervous system, bone marrow, and that's, that's all you need to know about the lymphatic vessels. Alright. Central nervous system. Here we go. The brain is the controlling organ of your body. And there are three major subdivisions. The cerebrum, cerebellum, and the brain stem. What is the Another name for the cerebrum or thing, something you've heard it called before. Gray matter. And it is in the right and left. That's the major lobes of the brain, right? What does the right lobe in your brain control? The left side, the left of, your side of your body. So then through process of elimination, you know that the left side controls the right side, correct? Yeah, it does. I think that's true for everybody but left-handed folks. I ain't sure about all that. (laughs) So, but your book should tell you what bodily functions are controlled on the left side of the brain and what bodily functions are controlled on the right side of the brain. Does anybody see that in your book anywhere? What does the left side of the brain do and what does the right side of the brain do? be there. <clears throat> and why is it important to know what functions are controlled and what side of the brain? Sir, shows, sure. shows where the injury might be. It's possible. Now, stroke. What about a stroke? Um, I don't know. <laughs> So, so you got the right answer, but you don't know why, huh? Okay, that's good enough. Well, in situations like a stroke, if someone's having a stroke and they can't speak at all, they are what you call aphasic. Or, or a, they suffer from aphasia. The medical prefix a or an means without. Okay, so if they had a stroke and they're aphasic, and since you know that speech is controlled in the left hemisphere of the brain, you kind of know where the stroke is, right? Now, that's not going to change how you treat them, but you understand what's going on, okay? That's just an example. But you need to find in your book what side what is controlled by what side of the brain, and because you might have a quiz on that. So I would find that. Then you have the cerebellum. What's another name or a little nickname for the cerebellum? Little brain. little brain. It's located posterior to the brain stem, right? It's a little outpocketing of brain that's posterior to the brain stem. But it has another thing that it's called. Brain. You No, know, the cerebellum. It's sometimes called the athlete's brain. Why do you think that is? Active. Sir? Active. Nah, it controls muscular coordination. Is that what you're going to say, Austin? Yeah. So it's called the athlete's brain. And then you have the brain stem. What are the three parts of the brain stem? Midbrain. Pons and the medulla oblongata. Why is, it, why is the alligator so honoring? No, Colonel Sanders, you wrong. The medulla oblongata. What is controlled by the brainstem? Okay. Breathing. Yeah, the basic functions of life. Breathing's the big one. It helps control blood pressure. The basic functions of life are pretty much controlled in the brain stem. Those are the apneustic centers as well. So, somebody look in your book. It's not depicted in this picture here. But what's what's located right here, just superior to the top of the brain stem? What is that area called? Huh? The is no, right in here. Um, the hypothalamus and the thalamus are located there, right? Yep. <laughs> and what you need to know is the hypothalamus in conjunction with the skin play a very major role in controlling your core body temperature. But that area has a name, though. It's called the diencephalon. You don't, you don't see that in the book anywhere? Yeah. The thalamus and the hypothalamus are located in the diencephalon, and that's the area just superior to the top of the brainstem. Where's that picture at? Does it it list certain functions that are controlled in certain areas of the brain? Cerebrum is the largest part of the brain. You have the frontal lobe, the parietal, temporal, and occipital. Does that sound familiar? These regions of the brain are covered by bone, right? Your cranium, your skull. And what are the uh, the seven bones of the cranium I told you you needed to know? A frontal, occipital, mm-hmm. two temporal, two parietal. And what's that floor that your brain sets on? Cribiform. The cribriform plate. That's correct. So the lobes kind of go hand in hand with the bones that cover them, right? Cerebellum coordinates various activities of the body like I said and that's that little uh, outpocketing of brain posterior to the brain stem muscular coordination is a big one that's, therefore it's called the, the athlete's brain sometimes and then the brain stem is the most primitive part of the central nervous system it controls the core body functions like breathing blood pressure It's got something to do with pupillary responses and changes, but uh, the brain stem is the midbrain pons and the medulla oblongata. Spinal cord is an extension of the brain stem, and its principal function is to transmit messages between the brain and the body. Um, How long is the spinal cord? About 18 inches, right? And here's a little bit of a, I guess, an interesting thing. Again, with that foramen magnum, that's that hole in the occipital bone that your brainstem passes through, right? Then you come down, you've got a, a descending tract of the spinal cord and an ascending tract. When it comes down and when it goes up, basically... Um, and then as the nerves that branch off of the spinal cord are either going to be sensory or motor nerves, right? Sensory nerves detect something about our environment. It's hot, it's cold, it's whatever. And it sends the signal back up to the spinal cord, up the ascending tract to the brain. The brain decodes the message and then sends the signal back down the descending tract, back out the motor nerves. And therefore we move, we take our hand off of something that's sharp or something that's mildly uncomfortable or whatever. Because if it's really, really uncomfortable, like it's really, really hot, reflexes, right? That, that signal basically goes from the sensory nerve to the spinal cord, jumps straight across to the descending track and comes right back out the motor nerves. Because you've got to move that hand really quick if it's hot, right? Or extremely cold. Reflexes. Remember I told you, uh, like when you're eating that chicken breast at KFC and you pull that thing apart and those little strings, I told you you're supposed to say what? Mm, Striated muscle, right? And your friends will think you're weird, right? And then when you eat the ribs, you say what? Uh, Intercostal muscle. You see that right there? The plexus of nerves in the lower back. It has a name, like most things. That's the cauda equina. Any guesses on what that is? You close, equine, equina is a horse, right? It's like horse's tail. Because it kind of looks like a a little horse's tail. But if somebody's aggravating you, I mean, you could, the little, that's the literal uh, translation, I guess, but horse's tail, horse's butt, horse's ass, whatever. Somebody's aggravating you, you call them a caldea, quina, and they're going to look at you like you're weird. The calda equina. cauda equina, I pronounce it calda. I don't know. If I was from Greece or um, I guess any one of the Latin countries there, I'd be from southern Greece or southern Spain or somewhere like that, I guess. All right, everything's covered by a membrane in the body, remember? I told you that, I know. But the the central nervous system is no different. The central nervous system is covered by the meninges. And they are three layers. They are three meningeal layers. The layer on the outside is the duramator. Duramator. Sometimes called the hard mother. M-O-T-H-E-R. That's a hard mother. all right? Duramator. Then you have the arachnoid. What does that sound like? There's a reason for that. And then you have the pia mater. If the dura mater is the hard mother, what do you think the pia mater is? It's the, it's the soft mother. That's correct. Outside layer, middle layer, inner layer. But, and again, not anatomically correct, but if you have the dura mater, you have the arachnoid then you have the pia mater hold up, where's my red one? inside there is a space more so and yes I did take art school All right, the dura mater, the arachnoid, pia mater. Then there's a space underneath the arachnoid. So what do you think it's called? It's Sub- subarachnoid space. There are tiny little blood vessels in there. They look like spiderwebs. That's how it was named arachnoid. Now the subarachnoid space has a. It's also called the ventricles of the brain. So when you go take your National Registry test and it gets to talking about the ventricle, ventricle really just means a space is what it really means. But if if they're talking about ventricles of the brain, they're not trying to trick you into thinking, oh, they really mean the heart. So that can't be the answer because you have a ventricle in your heart, obviously, two of them. But you have a ventricle in your brain, too. And it is the subarachnoid space. And the subarachnoid space produces and reabsorbs back into the body your cerebrospinal fluid. And that's the fluid that washes over the central nervous system. It's inside the the meninges, but outside of the central nervous system, but it washes over your brain and spinal cord. Cerebrospinal fluid. So which one's the hard mother? Amen. So the soft mother? Amen. And then that space beneath the arachnoid? So arachnoid. So arachnoid. Alright. <coughs> like I was saying earlier, the diencephalon is located between the brain stem and the cerebrum. Thalamus Hypothalamus, subthalamus, and epithalamus are all there. The thalamus processes sensory input and influences mood and general body movements. And what does the hypothalamus do in conjunction with the skin? Helps you control your core body temperature. That's correct. Limbic system influences emotions, motivation, mood, and sensation of pain and pleasure. Why you need to know that? Because National Registry might ask you. Now you could think to yourself if you see somebody whose emotions are all over the place or, you know, maybe they're just not that motivated or in a bad mood, you can think, man, his limbic system's out of whack but if you say that out loud, your friend's going to think you're weird. There you go. The peripheral nervous system. Cables of nerve fibers uh, make up the peripheral nervous system. So if you have the central nervous system which is the brain and spinal cord, then the rest of it is, therefore, then the peripheral, right? Two portions, somatic nervous system and autonomic nervous system. What do you think the somatic nervous system controls? You can look in a book, I don't care. Somatic? Does what? But I'm deaf. Okay, so things that you have conscious control over, right? Somatic nervous system. Autonomic sounds like what? Kind of sounds like automatic, right? So it's things you don't really have conscious control over. So it's not on the slide, but the autonomic nervous system has two further subcategories or ways of classifying things. That, are, that the autonomic nervous system controls. Can you see it in your book? Sympathetic sympathetic nervous system? Sympathetic and parasympathetic. And what you need to know, the autonomic nervous system, I said these are things that you really can't control, right? Like digestion. Do you have conscious control over your digestion? No. Do you have conscious control over your heart rate? No. Things of that nature. If something, has a, if something produces a sympathetic response of the autonomic nervous system, it's speeding things up. And that's what everybody needs to write down. A sympathetic response of the autonomic nervous system means things are speeding up. So what would you think then would be the chemical neurotransmitter that controls the sympathetic nervous system? Epinephrine, right? Adrenaline. The catecholamines. So if a sympathetic response of the autonomic nervous system means things are speeding up, what do you think a parasympathetic response means? Things are slowing down. And acetylcholine and esterase are the chemical neurotransmitters that innervate the... Parasympathetic nervous system. A-C-E-T-Y-L-C-H-O-L-I-N-E, acetylcholine. If that ain't right, it's close enough for government work. So sympathetic does what? Speeds up. Parasympathetic slows down. And that's the autonomic nervous system or things that you do not have conscious control over. And it's a, both are subcategories of the peripheral nervous system. Because we said the somatic nervous system covered what? Things that you do have control over like movements and things of that nature. I've already talked about the spinal reflexes. Cranial nerves, you have 12 pairs of cranial nerves which arise from the base of the brain. And here they are on this picture. And I'm sure you see them in your book. You need to know what each pair controls. What does each pair of cranial nerves do? You need to know that. For example, the ninth pair of cranial nerves in conjunction with the hyoid bone then would allow you to do what? Swallow. But that's but when you look it up it's not gonna say swallow, it says some other stuff. So you need to know the twelve pair of cranial nerves and what they do. Dermatomes, you just need to know that's area of the skin that corresponds to certain spinal nerves. In case registry ash. You. you got chainsaw over there? <laughs> Always wanted to get a little chihuahua and name him chainsaw. Yeah. Y'all stretch it. <clears throat> the eyeball what's another name for the eyeball the globe. the globe the conjunctiva covers the inner surface of the eyelids and the exposed sur- surface of the eye itself that's the inside of the eyelid what co- if people are perfusing properly if they're not in hypoperfusion or shock if you look on the inside of their eyelid what eyelid what color should it normally be like pinkish right But if someone is having problems circulating oxygenated blood to all the places that they should, you can look inside their eyelids and they will be pale or whitish. Gums as well. Okay? Because again, I I keep promising you, I'm not getting into a shock lecture tonight, but that's one of the things that epinephrine does. Like I think I alluded to a moment ago, that it closes pre- and post-capillary sphincters in the periphery of the body and shunts blood away from, I guess, non-vital parts of the body at that moment. Because uh, to me, they're all vital, right? I want them all. But eyelids, gums, skin in general loses circulation first. That's the first thing to lose blood in a situation like that. So Behind the iris is the lens. What is the iris of the eye? That's the colored part of your eye, right? The lens focuses his images on the retina, so the retina is in the back of the eye, correct? Because that's where your optic nerves and all that are. And central vision facilitates visual a- visualization of objects directly in front of you. So, if central vision is seeing right here, what's seeing out here? Periphery. In the periphery, right? Oh, man, that's all there's talking about the eye? All right, no, no, no. All right. Y'all, there's something else you need to know about the eye. To begin with, um, what's the the cornea? That covers your pupil and all that, right? Um, Also, you have the eye, the globe or the eyeball itself has two chambers, right? It's all fun and games, running with a stick until, right, somebody loses an eye. Why do you typically lose an eye? There's two chambers in your eyeball, and they both have, well, one's kind of like a liquid, and one's kind of like a liquid-ish type gel or whatever, but there's two chambers inside the eye that contain this. One's in the front, and one's in the back. What are they called? Somebody look in your book. What are they called? Conjecture? No, the chambers of the eyes. There's two of them that the hold fluid. The, the, the Black Lacrimal gland, no ma'am. That's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> I'm just You're just throwing stuff out there all willy-nilly, ain't you? Um. There's two chambers in the eye. That's cor- no, right. One's in the front, one's in the back. No. Sclera is the whites of the eyes, right? Oh, yeah. Don't fire until you see their sclera. Anterior chamber. anterior chamber and the posterior chamber. I've been telling you one's in the front, one's in the back. Oh. <laughs> so, the anterior chamber contains aqueous humor. The posterior chamber control uh, contains, can somebody check my spelling, but vitreous humor, and it ain't funny if you lose it. Somebody find that in the book and tell me how bad my spelling's off. Oh, it's pretty bad. Is it? How's it really spelled? Oh, I don't know. The posterior chamber is the largest chamber, and it holds that, that, that liquid's more of a gelatin-type stuff, and if you poke your eye and you lose some of your vitreous humor, that's not coming back. That's when the globe loses its shape and you lose the eye. You that, right? Did it? Mm-hmm. Good. Lord, look at that. Alright, so I'm surprised they didn't say nothing about that. But anyhow, the integumentary system, the skin, the fingernails, your hair, your teeth, all that's part of the integumentary system. It is the largest system really on the human body, right? Not necessarily in the human body. It serves as an interface between the body and the outside world, plays a crucial role in maintaining consistency of the internal environment. The heat the fluid, all these things, right? It's a protective barrier as well. So the skin in conjunction with what controls body temperature? Hypothalamus. Hypothalamus, yeah. The skin has different layers. The epidermis and the dermis Medical prefix epi means what? Above. above or on top of? Dermis. And then the subcutaneous tissue. Subcutaneous tissue is a nice way of saying what? Fat. Or adipose. A-D-I-P-O-S-E is another name. Subcutaneous tissue. Subcutaneous tissue subcutaneous tissue, adipose tissue, fat. So if you get burned and it hurts, how deep do you think the burn is? Not terribly deep, right? Because if the burn is too deep, what lies in the dermal layer? nerves so if you burned and it looks really bad and they're not really complaining of it hurting in that particular spot what do you know yeah. it, it's fairly deep burn right because it's, it's killed those nerves now, I'm not saying you get burned really bad you're not going to hurt because that's the furthest thing from the truth because and I, this is not a burn lecture neither but the area of, of third degree or, or, or full thickness burns that we call them now where the nerves are dead all around it's going to be second degree and around that's going to be first degree. So you're going to hurt, so don't please don't <laughs> misunderstand what I'm saying. So the sense of pressure or touch or anything like if somebody touches your arm or whatever and you feel that touch, you're actually detecting that in the dermal layer, not the epidermis. The epidermis is just old dead or in some of them living cells that are packed tightly together to make that moisture barrier, right, and to to protect you from pathogens and things of that nature. But there's no nerves up there, so you're not going to feel. Three major functions of the skin to protect the body in the environment, to regulate the temperature of the body, to transmit information from the environment to the brain, and again, it helps with the regulation of moisture also. Digestive system. Yeah, that's really all there is to the skin. Hmm. The digestive system is composed of the gastrointestinal tract. Gastro means what? Stomach. Intestinal means intestines, right? What's, what's What do we call the doctors, however, that specialize in the gastrointestinal tract? Gastro- Enterologists. Enterologists, right? So, intro means intestines as well, gastroenterology. Stomach, intestines, mouth, salivary glands, pharynx, esophagus, liver, gallbladder, pancreas, rectum and the anus. That's uh, all the parts of the anatomy of the digestive system. Uh, Digestion is processing of food that nourishes the individual cells of the body and it eliminates the waste, right? The abdomen is the second major body cavity it contains major organs of digestion and excretion and there are four quadrants so when I y'all walk in the class one day and you see this on the board what do you think I'm gonna ask you to do Right. Four quadrants of the the abdominal quadrants. This one is called the right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, left lower quadrant, and the right lower quadrant, right? And what is this? That is the umbilicus or belly button. Somebody look in your book and tell me what organs are located in the right upper quadrant of your abdomen. Liver, gallbladder. Alright, so. Let's we'll see, the liver, gallbladder. Mm-hmm. The kidneys are retroperitoneal, they are behind the, the um, abdominal cavity. Some books list them in there, and I think this one does too. But they're not technically in the abdomen. In the abdomen, they are retroperitoneal. They are behind in the costovertebral angle. Remember, that's where the kidneys are. So you got your your liver, you got your gallbladder. What else? All right, so you've got. You have parts of the large and small intestine. What else? Your book doesn't say anything else? Parts of the large and small intestine. You can't read it probably, but... Where does the book tell you that the pancreas is? Behind the abdominal cavity on the posterior abdominal wall in the upper quadrant. Say that again, please, ma'am. Uh, uh, behind the abdominal cavity on the posterior abdominal wall in the upper quadrant, quadrant. Yeah. It is somewhat, and in, in, in the last, that's a change in the additions in this very book because the last book didn't say it was retroperitoneal, but it is It is definitely deep. If the pancreas gets damaged from trauma, it's typically penetrating trauma because it is so deep. But for purposes of this, even though in reality it comes across over into here too, uh, in, the, in the right and the left upper quadrant, but I want you to put the pancreas in the right upper quadrant. So what's in the left upper quadrant? Spleen. Spleen. Okay. Parts of the large and small intestine. And then you do have this part of the pancreas as well. Yes. What's in the right lower quadrant? Cecum. But it's we're just going to say parts of the large and small intestine, and what else? Appendix. The appendix. What's in the left lower quadrant? Small intestine, small intestine. Parts. Of the large and small intestines. That's all intestines. So, if someone's complaining of left lower quadrant abdominal pain, process of elimination means there's probably a problem with what? Yeah, It's usually something like diverticulitis. Because the only thing that is there are intestines. Okay. All right. Something else that's important to know: which one of these organs is solid, and which ones are hollow? The liver. What is it? Solid. Gallbladder. Solid. It's hollow. Intestines, obviously, it's hollow. The pancreas. Come on. Don't get shy. Solid. It's solid. The spleen. Stomach obviously is hollow. Intestines are hollow, and parts of the pancreas again solid. Hollow. What's the appendix? Uh, you hollow. sure? Hollow. Which one? Are you sure? Yeah, because I got mine taken out. And you looked at it. They showed they me a picture of it. So you know for a fact it's hollow. Yeah. Okay. Don't doubt you, sir. <laughs> Now, why is it important to know which abdominal organs are solid and which ones are hollow? The The type of pain they produce. The type of pain they produce if they're injured. Solid organs will produce what's called somatic pain, S-O-M-A-T-I-C, or pinpoint pain. The patient will be able to tell you, I hurt right here. Okay? Hollow organs are more diffuse pain, all over pain. They just their, their entire abdomen will hurt. And they won't be able to pinpoint it so much. Right? What is the name for the solid organ? Somatic. S O M A T I C. So say you see a patient with a big red whelp in their right upper quadrant. And they're saying, I hurt right here. Skin's pale, cool, and diaphoretic. What do you think's wrong? And their abdomen's rigid and distended. And the liver holds how much of your blood? Up to 40%. You take your knowledge of anatomy. You look at the mechanism of injury or how they got hurt. And you know where these organs are, what type of pain they produce if they're injured. And you're going to figure out on the scene Is it going to change how you treat them, whether it's the liver or the spleen or no? But you know, but you know, you know what's wrong with them. All right. always found this is I've always found this to be interesting. Y'all might think I'm weird, but probably already do. The adrenal glands they produce and excrete adrenaline, right? Epinephrine. have you ever heard that saying, and I ain't even making this up, but if you, you've, you've heard somebody say, man, it scared me so bad, I, I pissed myself, or whatever. Man, he pissed himself, he was so scared. You, y'all heard that, right? Alright, the adrenal glands, where are they located, and what do they produce? Y'all, everybody got this? Where are the adrenal glands? There's two of them. Where are they? They're right on top of the kidneys. Medical root word for kidney, neph, N-E-P-H. The adrenal glands produce what? Epinephrine. Epinephrine. What's the medical prefix epi mean? Or on top of? You'll never forget where the adrenal glands are now, right? You should have told us, told us that a long time ago. Listen, before. I decided in what order I'm going <laughs> to lay out the knowledge, all right? I, I, I make that decision. Epinephrine produces producing adrenal glands, and epinephrine tells you where it's located. On top of the kidneys. And it is possible to get such a dump of adrenaline that you could piss yourself. So I hear, you know. Alright, you see the picture here The, The kidneys, there's the pancreas And you see how it kind of runs Really over into that quadrant as well And this picture actually shows more of it over here Than even in the right side But listen, in 1992 when I took EMT class They told me it was in the right upper quadrant So I'm duty bound to tell you the same thing kidneys the pancreas what's the, the main thing pancreas does for us produces insulin and glucagon uh, I'm not sure why they're showing this one little loop of bowel but that's in the duodenum yeah we'll move on the anatomy the mouth consists of the lips teeth gums uh, cheeks tongue contains salivary gland what do the salivary glands do it starts to break down, the, the breaking down process of the food that's in your mouth. It also lubricates your upper airway, uh, not upper airway, uh, your esophagus and things of that nature. The salivary, the saliva in conjunction with that peristalsis I told you about, right? Those wave-like contractions in the esophagus push, uh, pushes food on down into the stomach. Stomach receives food, stores it, and moves it into the small bowel, into regular small amounts. Basically, you've got the, the stomach, and what's in your stomach? Stomach, stomach acid, pepsin. P-E-P-S-I-N. But it's really like hydrochloric acid or something really, really strong, you know, because they say it'll eat, it'll eat through steel or whatever. Never tried it. That's what I hear. Yeah, stays in your stomach, that big muscle. But the muscles on the outside of it contract and kind of churn, make things inside the stomach churn. It mixes with the, the pepsin and the other stomach acids. And in small little amounts, once it converts to something called chime, it passes through the pyloric valve into the duodenum. Huh? Or duodenum. Duodenum, duodenum. Yep. Yeah. The duodenum is has got a very thick mucus layer on it too, because it's the first little stretch of your intestines, if you will. And as things, as this chime, this partially digested food passes through the pyloric valves into your intestines, some stomach acid that comes with that too, right? That's why it's got that thick mucus layer. So, if someone has ulcers, or bleeding ulcers in particular, where are they typically located? In that section, that that mucus layer has gotten a little too thin because of stress or bacteria or whatever and it starts eating the actual intestine. That's where the bleeding ulcers come from. The pancreas below and behind the liver and stomach and behind the peritoneum, it produces the insulin. The insulin, you have bile from the gallbladder. It helps break down fatty foods and things of that nature. All of the digestive enzymes that are introduced to the food are introduced into duodenum. That's another reason why it's got that thick... Um, um, fatty layer, if you will, because it needs extra protection because that's where all the, the things are dumped in. The liver, poisonous substances produced by digestion are rendered harmless in the liver. It forms factors necessary for blood clotting. It's connected to the intestine by the bile ducts. And the gallbladder serves as a reservoir for the bile that's produced in the liver. So where do you think the gallbladder is in relationship to the liver? Sets right on top of it, right? Small intestines, major hollow organ of the abdomen. It is composed of the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ilium. I L E U M. The products of digestion are absorbed into veins and transported to the liver. Eighty percent. Well, let me just rephrase. It depends on what book you're reading. Eighty to ninety percent of absorption into the body takes place in the small intestine. Eighty to ninety percent of absorption takes place in the small intestines. Well if you read that, that's that's indicating that 90 to 95 percent, right? Because it says the large intestines absorbs the final 5 to 10 percent, right? The cecum, the colon, and the rectum and the colon, you've got the part that comes up the right side. What do you think that section is called? Ascending. ascending colon. And at the most posterior point of the ascending colon is the cecum. And that's what the appendix hangs off of. So you have the part that goes up, or the ascending colon. Then you got the part that goes across. Yeah, because... For those of y'all that are already working in the fire service, you've got that one compartment on your engine that you open door on both sides and you can see all the way through. What we call that compartment? It's the transverse compartment. It goes all the way across. So the ascending colon, transverse colon, and what's the part that goes down? And again, it does absorb the final 10% or whatever. The appendix may easily become obstructed and as a result inflamed and infected. And the rectum is a large hollow organ that stores quantities of feces until it's expelled. And a complex series of circular muscles called sphincters control the escape of liquids, gases, and solids. Thank God for the sphincters. Any questions about that? All right. That was the anatomy, the physiology. Uh, Salivary glands, stomach, liver, pancreas, and small intestines. Again, all this uh, works works together uh, to break down into the basic sugars, fatty acids, amino acids. Well, that's all they're going to say. All right. Well, I'm glad I told you about the pyloric valve and all that other stuff already then, huh? Okie dokie. Endocrine system. That is a complex message and control system. What controls all body functions? Everything that you do is controlled by what? The brain and hormones. And those are produced pretty much in the endocrine system, okay? Okay. So, if the exocrine glands excrete chemicals for elimination, or to to leave the body, the endocrine system then secretes hormones and things to be used inside the body, does that make sense? Okay. Hormones regulate all your body functions, and you have agonists and antagonists. In simple words, an agonist makes something happen, an antagonist then kind of prevents something from happening or slows it happening, if that makes sense. It says here an agonist is a molecule that binds to a cell's receptor and triggers a response by that cell. So therefore an antagonist is a molecule that binds to a cell's receptors and blocks the action of the agonist. So later on when we get into to medications and things of that nature if we say that a medication is a beta 2 agonist what do you think it kind of causes beta responses correct if it was a and i'm just making stuff up now if it was a beta antagonist then it would prevent them the the beta responses Pituitary gland is often referred to as the master gland. Why? Why is the pituitary gland the master gland? Its secretions secretions. secretions or hormones control all the other glands of the endocrine system. Okay. And what? So what controls the pituitary gland then? Or helps regulate it. Hypothalamus. hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is located where? The diencephalon. Thyroid uh, now, but now before we even go any further, the pituitary gland. we you've always taught been taught in school the pituitary gland controls what? Growth. Growth. Yes. Yeah. Growth and development. Hypothalamus, I've already told you, helps regulate core body temperature with the skin. Thyroid gland does what? Kind of affects metabolism, the production of energy. So if someone has, uh, suffers from hypothyroidism, what, what does that mean? It yeah. doesn't The pancreas. It is an organ of both the endocrine system and the digestive system. Within each islet of Langerhans, that's a part of the pancreas that you need to be familiar with that name, the islets of Langerhans, you have alpha cells that produce and excrete glucagon, which is stored in the liver, and you have beta cells that produce and secrete insulin, And then delta cells that secrete somatostatin. Pronounce that, Caleb. Okay. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> and I can tell you for 12 plus years teaching this curriculum, that's the first time I've seen delta cells. Alpha and beta have always glucagon, insulin. So, hey, I learned something tonight. See, where are the adrenal glands? On top of that kidney. The inner portion of the adrenal glands, the medulla, produces adrenaline and norepinephrine. Epinephrine and norepinephrine. Reproductive glands and hormones, ovaries, and women test the testes or testicles in the men; those are the gonads. That's a real word. And obviously, testosterone is the major uh, androgen manufactured by the testes. And you have estrogen, progesterone, and HCG—the three major female. Hormones. Let me say something real quick. Urinary system anatomy and physiology. What's the main purpose, the main function of the urinary system? fluid balances and and discharging of waste. Main functions are to control fluid balance, to filter and eliminate waste, and control pH balance. The kidneys rid uh, blood of the toxic waste and control balance of water and salt. When the blood passes through the kidneys, it filters. What are the... The functional units of the kidneys called. The, do I? I? I don't know in English, but in Spanish, and I think it's near to the, to the Latin is nephrosito. Nephrosito? Nephrons. Nefron. Yeah. The nephrons are the, uh, the functional unit of the kidneys. That's what actually does the filtering. And as you pass... The, the blood passes through the kidneys, it filters, it removes excess fluid, it removes the waste, um, helps control pH balance through the elimination of uric acid. Okay. Basically the kidneys filter, the fluid passes through the ureters, down to the bladder, from the bladder through the urethra, and then leaves the body. When it comes to the genital systems, as we progress through the class, primarily, of course, in the function of our job, we need to know more about the female reproductive system than we do the male, childbirth, and things of that nature. Um, And I think we probably are all familiar with the fact that the male genitalia lies outside of the pelvic cavity, and the female genitalia except for the clitoris and the labia are contained within the pelvis. And again, the testes, penis, prostate glands right there at the urethra. There's not a whole bunch about that that you really need to know. I mean, even when it comes to trauma, if, if if someone is injured, it's a soft tissue injury and the female reproductive is something a little bit different as far as what you need to know. All right, The ovaries, those are the female gonads, right? <clears throat> and what are these tubes right here called? The fallopian tubes. And then this is then the uterus. You've got three parts of the uterus. You've got the cervix. You've got the fundus. And then there's the body of the uterus. Which, And again, we're going to talk about all that a lot when we get to the... Uh, OBGYN chapters. The cervix is the, the separating part or the dividing part between the uterus and the vagina. The ovaries produce the sex hormones and the oocytes, which are the eggs. And during the menstrual cycle, ovum, the ovum matures. If fertilization occurs, fertilized egg proceeds through the fallopian tube to implant into the uterus. Uh, If the egg is fertilized, typically it is fertilized inside the fallopian tube and travels down. And the uh, extra hormones that are produced during the menstrual cycle makes the inner lining of the uterus thicker and stickier, which promotes the egg adhering itself to the inside of the uterine wall or the uh, endometrium. And then, of course, if fertilization does not occur, each one of those little cells kind of sloths off minute amounts of blood, and then when you throw in all the cells, then that's the menstrual cycle. The removing of the inside of the uterine lining. Right. The body cells, tissues, and organs require oxygen, Nutrients, sugar, and the removal of waste to perform their job. Oxygen is brought into the cells through the respiratory and circulatory systems. The digestive system takes food and breaks it down into sugar or glucose. And the circulatory system is the carrier for these supplies, these nutrients, and the removal of the waste products. Bam.